Hey guys, and welcome to Sounds Like NYC. I'm here with my friend, the... Do I introduce myself? Yeah. yeah. Hey guys, my name is Anand Sadara. I'm a composer, songwriter, and I had the pleasure of meeting David recently, and we've had our conversations for the past couple of months, so yeah. I'm excited to... But I got a chance to meet with him the other day, and today's our first day actually jumping into this, so... Yeah, it's been a, it's been a funny ride, actually. Uh, yeah. I probably... I mean, the first one we spoke was probably born in December. Maybe yeah, exactly. December. That's right. And it's just been, you know, scheduling issues and stuff like that, but like you're finally here. Here we are. That's it. Yeah, 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 so, yeah no problem. So, so tell us a little about what you do, and uh, you, you've only been in your seat for like two years, right? Yeah, exactly. Coming up on uh, two years, um, I guess I'll start off with my musical journey. Uh, I've always been, you know, involved in music in some capacity. Yeah, you know, in my early childhood, it was always around me. I was thrown into, uh, you know, violin, piano lessons, never gravitated towards it. Mm -hmm. um, Always kind of under, not under resentment, but just you know, it was almost like oil and water, it just didn't fit. Right. Um, I was in the orchestra when I was at you know elementary school, middle school by default. Right. Um, but I've always had a year for it, and I think I've noticed that very young, where my mom would be watching like an Indian movie, and all of a sudden she would hear me upstairs on the keyboard and playing the same melody, and then she would come in and I'm playing the piece, and she's like, oh, okay, so there's something here, uh, as far as you know, having the ear for it. And then it just developed. Um, I started off very much listening to lyrics. I was very much into hip hop because I was obviously what was around. I grew up in a lot of uh, say '90s hip hop. Uh, Eminem was at his peak at the time. Detroit was not too far from where I grew up in Toronto, so right across the border. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, same idea for Detroit: uh, White Stripes, Jack White, and that kind of stemmed to all the things you would see on um, what was equivalent to MTV mm -hmm. in Toronto, which is much music. Uh, you would see things in Nirvana and Soundgarden. Those were all the, the first kind of introductions to music I had. So, um, you know, just kind of continuing on, I, I never really had a, uh, a foresight that I was going to get into music as a, you know, career or whatnot, but it was always just something I was associated with, everyone around me, the kids I grew up with, we were all interested in music. And it wasn't until probably my senior year of high school where I actually picked up uh, a guitar and an instrument, and that's where the, I guess, the whole uh, instrumental journey started. Interesting. Yeah, so, so, do you feel like that the sort of push from your parents into music kind of help you build you for the person you are now, or do you think you'd be in the same place had you not you know, had that? That's, that's interesting. I, I think it was a combination. I feel like at the time, I just think I didn't have an interest for it, but I think that sense of discipline, like waking up every Sunday morning going to Indian Carnatic violin lessons, and even the fact of, you know, having activities. Like, you know, I play hockey growing up as well. I find when I relate, you know, we can circle back to this, when I relate to how I got into practicing instruments, when I chose to uh, get into music as an adult, it really, it really stemmed from all the hours I put in as a hockey player. Mm -hmm. I would practice literally every day after school. I would get out of my rollerblades, play until it got dark, and then you know come in. Take it's very painful. It is. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you know in the spring when you're not playing hockey, you're playing lacrosse. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like that discipline of always being involved in an activity and honing that. Um, my parents gave me the outlet for that, but I was the one I think very young. I took, I took a, an immediate. Um, interest in seeing results coming out of what time you put into something. So do you feel like it's sort of important, like the development of like a, a child's having sort of discipline, albeit you know either music or like sports? You think children need that? I, I think so. I think I think here's the thing. I think if if they are given the options, mm -hmm. um, and I think that you know I'm not a parent, so I can't really talk about what that process would be. But if they had the options of like, hey, um, it seems like you enjoy playing soccer with your friends. How about I sign you up for a league? And I think it teaches them two things when you do that. Number one, decision making, uh, as well as their early stages of what commitment looks like. Mm -hmm. So if you send up a kid for a season of soccer, um, and he's like, hey, mom, I want to do this again next year, that's developing how committed they are to something, at the very least. And then it's a subconscious thing, I'm sure. Like, they're probably not thinking, hey, I want to be a professional soccer player, but it applies to different things that they do. Gotcha. So if they find an activity later on, they know what it takes to you know, kind of stick with it at some point. So yeah, I would say so. Gotcha. So what's your main focus right now? What are you mainly focusing on in terms of music? Yeah, um, my, right now I'm very much involved in the in film work. So, you know, not even just film, I'd say just the visual landscape of media. So contributing music to films, TVs, web series, advertising, um, and, you know, in more ways than one, where not just you know writing the music or the score for a particular visual piece, but combining uh, my contemporary side, which is you know being a live musician and recording and songwriting, and incorporating that into the score. So say 
hey, you know what, I can write a song, you know, original songs for you, for your piece, as well as adapt a score that fits to what you're trying to carry out. So um, trying to manage those two things within the realm of visual media, that's my main focus. And then, of course, as, a, as an artist myself and you know, uh, being a songwriter, I'm focusing on putting um, on a couple of EPs that are coming out uh, at some point this year. Oh, so, so I said they get? Um, well, June 6th is the tentative date right now for the first EP. Tentative just based on uh, finishing up vocals, just uh, on some personal kind of things. But uh, yeah, June 6th will be the first, uh, looks like the first deadline for when it's going to be coming out. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we spoke a couple days ago, and something you said kind of stuck with me. You said you're really focused on just having sort of like a sonic signature. Right. So let's touch on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think we can kind of stem it back to uh, even even a person's influences as a you know whether they're a musician, uh, a visual artist, whatever. Um, the sonic signature, in my mind, that that's very particular to what I do. But I think anyone that knows how to apply their art as an embellishment, an enhancement, or even also a necessity to enhance someone else's media, I think that's when you kind of establish it as a signature. And when I talk about it in the sonic realm, I can give you an example where you think about the some of the largest franchises that have lasted the test of time in the media world, uh, and what music has meant to those franchises. You know, the, the number one, I think the most influential one on me was the James Bond franchise. Mm -hmm. You hear that theme and you immediately think what that means, what that okay. franchise means, whether no matter who the James Bond of the day is, that embodies what that story and what that world of Bond is. Mm -hmm. um, you think about the Lincoln commercials, you associate with two things, Matthew McConaughey and Miles Davis's music in the background. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very you know, recent uh, franchise, but I think that, that's kind of been a marriage that's worked. You know, McDonald's, that you know, jingle that everybody knows, yeah. you associate immediately with PC versions. There you go. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the sonic signature, I think, is something that a lot of people don't think about. And it's really it's really subjective and it's almost um, it, there's a fine line of, of, of kind of being uh, self-evaluating how you think you're embellishing somebody's project and then actually understanding how you're creating a sonic, sonic signature. So I think a lot of people when they're thinking about visual mediums, and this everyone's guilty of this when they're a musician and they move into composing for a visual medium where they think that, hey, my music is great on its own, it must fit whatever this visual medium is just by default. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, I'm, I don't really have to explain it for a lot of uh, you know, professional composers or people that have had experience with this, but just the, the general viewing public. When you see a piece of music that's been constructed even for a seven second uh, you know, intro to, a, to a, a web series that you're watching on YouTube nowadays, the conversations that go behind that, if it's really effective, um, those conversations, they, you know, they, they're almost like, it's very consultative. You have to, you have to understand what the director or whoever is in charge of this production understands about their audience, how they want their audience to react, um, you know, where they see the, the series going as far as direction at some point, how they need the beginning of the series to tie into the end of that, and how do you sum all of that up into a seven-second intro that embodies all of that, so that that theme that you write for them can carry over? So a sonic signature is something that you know, no matter what point in your life you are, you have a signature that you're going to sign in a document, and that very much translates over as well to how I think an effective franchise carries out their sonic uh, sonic elements for their, for themselves as well. How am I gonna? How is this gonna sound like what I'm about for the next however many years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a way to, to sort of visualize that is, you know, funny enough, I, I heard this story about this guy who just jokingly, on his uh, driver's license, instead of putting a signature, right. just putting a picture of a cat. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. And then when he was, you know, he had to buy a house, <laughs> he said to put the signature of a cat like, over and over again. It's kind of sort of the same thing, where it's just like, you have to choose it wisely, of course, because that's where you're going to be branded as. Exactly, correct. How are you going to be associated with mm -hmm. uh, so, so what do you what do you think the steps are to get to that point? Um, I guess in the visual medium, you mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's very much the the conversations that you have and who those people you're talking to are. Mm -hmm. So directors are going to give you a different um, a different conversation than you know perhaps a producer. A producer is very much managing budgets. They're thinking they're the ones that are having um, the, the majority of the relationships and conversations with stakeholders. If there's any money involved in this project, 
but a director is going to give you more of a creative, um, all around big picture type of conversation, whereas the, the producer may give you, like I said, like a financial uh, financial return conversation. And then even the um, the people around you, if you're working with the art director or the director of photography uh, in some of those conversations, if it's a larger meeting, I think it's understanding if if the director's vision is, hey, I want, you know, it looks like the, um, you know, the director of photography has given me a landscape visually. I know what I want it to look like, and I know how I want these shots to kind of make the audience feel. Let's just say this is film. You have to understand how the music is, you're not, you don't want to put a hat on a hat, right. but you also want to uh, understand how you're going to take that visual world, and let's just say you're walking through that world, what would you hear? What, what would you hear that would make you that what what is not being said in the piece? That's basically my point. And that's what you need to embellish and also tie into something that's going to stick in the audience's mind. So I'll give you an example. When you think about James Bond, you know the look of those, you know, what a Bond picture looks like. You know what comes with the aesthetics. Um, you know, so you have the cars, the girls, you know, the the way Bond moves and his lifestyle. That's that's the the kind of that's the the, the stylistics of it. But I'm talking about the actual look of the picture. It's associated with luxury and class, and it has a certain old world, but also almost like a timeless type of thing. Mm -hmm. And at the music, if you think about the idioms that cross over into the double seven world, jazz has always been the the foundation for how that initial theme has always gone. Mm -hmm. And then from there, as you know, things have gotten to the '90s and so forth. They've still very much held on to what's the music of the day is, whether it's electro pop or electronic music, excuse me, um, but jazz has transferred over to them. It's still that, what luxury means today. So, mm -hmm. you know, you got to find what that theme is that ties it all together. So for Bond, if you're using luxury, that's kind of a word that you're looking for, or that's the type of characteristic you're looking for when you're talking to a producer or director or that team I was talking about earlier. What is that main hook for what the, what the piece, the franchise, the series needs to embody and what, how, how does music have to play a role in that? Does there need to be a theme that repeats over and over? Mm -hmm. Does the music need to be so subtle so that the audience, or sorry, the, the, part, the, the dialogue is basically the lead instrument, mm -hmm. if you're going to think about it sonically? Um, those are the types of questions that you're asking. And it, it is, you know, uh, when you think about it, 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 it's very gray these days, but at the same time, I think it's become more black and white as you narrow it. Once you find out what those pieces are, then everything becomes very black and white. Once you figure out, okay, we are working with these building blocks, anything that comes after that, sometimes you might have an accidental piece uh, or an idea that comes into it that might work, but those that's when you have a conversation. Once it's constructed, it's very easy to take that and use it, especially if it's a series or a continuing franchise. Mm -hmm. So th those are the conversations I deal with uh, as of right now. How much do you, do you as a, like, a composer deal with just like thinking about like just human behavior? Does that ever play out just like your, your pieces? Absolutely. I think um, just kind of even saying like, what is not being said, when, especially when I see uh, when there's dialogue, if somebody is talking to, you know, let's say there's two people talking and someone's motives are different than what they're actually portraying in their dialogue and their visuals, the music has to capture that. Yeah. So it's writing about, you know, if you think about even when you're having a dialogue with someone else, you're almost wondering, I think these this day and age, especially in business transactions, how many people are like saying one thing, but they mean something differently? And you'll never be able to really gauge that. So if there was a composer scoring your situation, what would you want them to capture? That's right. the way I think about it. Yeah. So there's something like to be said with the song signature of like let's say a film, right? Or like a song brand. Right. But what about, you know, like we are talking about like individual artists mm -hmm. have that. Yes. Because it's mostly due to just like the physicality of the person. Right, right, right. So that's the uh, that's another thing where you know, and this is more my observation as I've developed as well. Uh, so some of my influences that I think we can relate to this, and we mm -hmm. talked about it briefly the other day, you know, uh, take Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. you take uh, Nirvana, you take Ray Charles. Um, I'll use those three because those are three fundamental ones that I kind of really use as examples. There's a physicality, I think, between, number one, musicianship, like how somebody plays an instrument. A lot of people, let's start with Hendrix. How did Hendrix play the guitar that way? I, obviously, it came from, you know, the guy had a talent, but I think people forget about what goes into developing that sound. Hendrix, if you took away all the, you know, the amplification, and you took away the effects and everything, 
If you hear some of those apartment recordings from Jimi Hendrix, his tone was all in his fingers. And I think that's the key that a lot of people that play anything that's bluesy forget. Those blues players, even Hendrix, Money Waters, all those guys, it was a very visceral kind of thing that was all in how they bent the strings and how they touched it. And, they, and that takes a lot more time than being able to play fast. Uh, to bend each note a certain way or to be able to feel that inflection in your, on your skin when you're playing and knowing how that resonates in the sound, that is something that cannot be taught and that's something I think a lot of people don't think about. So the physicality is a huge part in how somebody plays the instrument. Of course, Hendrix's fingers are also very large. So where somebody was playing, when they're bending their wrists, Hendrix could just sit there and he could bend it with his fingers. And if you watch, you know, a very clear one is Red House at Woodstock. Hendrix doesn't move his wrist too much. It's very much in his fingers, unless he's really diving into those higher notes. But that's one example. Another thing is the sonic signature for how somebody phrases something. Uh, I think a huge part, especially in American music, is Ray Charles. Like the way that guy played uh, piano and sang, that was a very, very personal, um, very, very personal expression of how that man's life was, I think. I don't, I don't know the man, but I'm just saying, just the way that translates over, I, mean, there, I don't think it's an accident that we react to Ray Charles the way we do, or just somebody that makes us feel something when we're listening to music. I think there's different different tiers and different layers to how that, how that makes us feel, but with Ray, you can put something on and it takes you very deeply into your, into your childhood. It, it just has that nostalgia that takes you back to home, and you're like, oh, why does the blues make me feel a certain way? I think you can hear many different blues players, but Ray just makes you feel like Americana. It just it resonates America. It's you know when it, when it was known of being America. That's what I think about when I hear Ray Charles. And then there's other parts of what he does as well, whether it goes into jazz blues, his later stuff, which is very personal. It's and it still carries over. You can hear Ray playing um, a country song, and you know this. Everyone knows that Ray branched off into different mediums. He's known for doing every style, but. When he played a country song, it still sounded bluesy, but that was that was his sonic signature. The blues, I think, was what he used, and gospel is what he used to kind of move around. And there's no shame in doing that, obviously. I mean, who am I to say how Ray Charles should play? But I'm saying, in this day and age, there have been so many great artists that have come after Ray's time as well. And I think a lot of people, they feel like, hey, you know what? They get stuck in either sounding exactly like who they're influenced by, and they can't get out of that, or they're trying to do something so original and so obscure that it completely takes them away from who they're actually trying to reach out to. Uh, when, you tr when you're trying to be different, I think it, ta it takes away from what the development is as to how you get your own sound. Yeah. Um, even, even Nirvana, I don't think it was an accident that, I mean, I, I, I think my favorite grunge band as far as like, musicality would be Soundgarden. They had you know, Chris Cornell at the best vocals, Band was kick ass, Matt Cameron was a great drummer. But as far as songwriting, Kurt Cobain, I think, wins as far as songs that have still that are still played today with that same, you know, that same impact. You know, you put on anything from Nevermind today, and it's still like, oh wow, that was probably the last greatest catalog of pop songs that you heard on um, top forty radio since who knows? You know, I mean there's I think there's the post grunge thing, like I think Jack White. Even though he kind of does his blues rock thing, that, I consider that post grunge. Uh, when the White Stripes came out, I think they had that same thing, the Air Seven Nation Army and everything. But my point being, Nirvana, it was a, you could tell it was very much developed, you know, and it was thought out. I don't think, uh, I think it, a lot of his lyrics, lyrics are probably trivial, but the songwriter, the actual chords he's using, whether he was aware of them or not, they're very much in line with like creating something that you, res that you gravitate towards mm -hmm. and it makes an impact. Yeah, well, how much time do you feel like somebody should spend on that before it just becomes like disingenuous? Like you said, like some people try and be too original, it just becomes like you know alienating you know, people. Of course. Well, I mean, I think I think I think the first thing you need to do is like start off by playing your instrument as an instrument, like understanding, like, hey, what can I do with this thing? What do I want to do with this thing? I think people have to have realistic expectations of themselves. Do you want to be a Jimi Hendrix? Do you know what it takes to sound? Like a Jimi Hendrix, and then make that your own. You know, people need to also understand their their threshold for learning. I, I don't think everyone, ironically, even though we have so many resources nowadays, I don't think everyone wants to take that step of learning how to sound 
to a certain caliber of musicianship. Yeah. Um, so I think number one is learning your instrument and actually being able to play it. Um, or you know, if you know how to play an instrument, learning how to adapt that to your craft. If songwriting is something that you're focusing on, learning how to write songs that you're like, oh, I seem to gravitate towards this chord progression, or maybe not this chord progression, but this style of chord progression. Like, okay, I, I do chord uh, song format, like I do verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus, out. I seem to do that in almost every song, but they sound different enough that you can tell they're different songs. Maybe that's your songwriting style, and maybe it's going to develop so that you can even um, diversify that even more as you go along. However, that's what I think, you know, my, my, my point being that's what people need to focus on is what are things that are working as you're developing, and keep those in your pocket, but also knowing what, how you can sit back on a foundation of if you didn't play or didn't do this thing for three years, would you be able to map your way back to get to that point where you were playing at your highest level? Right. That's what I think in true development is and understanding your sound. I think Ray, um, Hendrix, all these guys, even I thought, great example, Miles Davis, the guy put the horn down for so many years at one point in his life, picked it back up, which is not easy to do. Trumpet is fucking no joke. Mm -hmm. And he was still, um, he, he got back into it. And he sounded like Miles. And I don't, I, I, you know, this is before my time, but and I don't know him, but there had to have been a certain way to map that back out. Mm -hmm. he, you, you don't forget how you got to a certain point once you get to like a certain caliber. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I remember myself, I played so much uh, during my college days. This is probably like, you know, uh, let's just say eight to 10 years ago. And in between a certain time frame, I was always playing, I was developing, and I, I felt myself like, wow, I'm singing at a certain level, I'm playing at a certain level. Um, and then I chose to leave, uh, leave home and you know, kind of venture out. And once I did that, it, I wasn't able to practice the same way because I had to focus on things like work and making a living. But I can still, I still know how to get back to sounding like that, and I know what's realistic to attain. If I know I have an album that's due in three months, and um, they're asking me what I want to do. I'm probably not going to pick something that is super, um, what's the word, like super technically Jimi Hendrix driven. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I need to do a really solid, really pick them, like every note sounds fucking amazing blues record. Mm -hmm. But I might do uh, an embellished blues record where I'm doing, like, I, I, I know I still play piano at the same level relatively all, all the time because that's my main instrument. Let me do that and then I can lay guitar lists over that to embellish it to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. So you got to know how to work within how you're mapping your the peak of your talents at any given time at any given stage of your, your career. And that's that's something to keep very much in mind. Have you noticed like anything about you yourself like where you like tend to like always go back to in terms of playing? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I, I can you know give an example when I, I think playing the blues is one is one of the major the major things for me. The way I map out a song, if I'm, if I'm sitting in front of a group of new musicians and they're playing me, they're like, hey, this is my song. The first way I actually map it out, the skeleton of it, is actually the blues. Not the blues chords, but the blues scale. So once I find the blues scale of a song, that's my roadmap for how I will put my spin on what that song is. But I apply that to even when I need to figure out where I'm at with my guitar playing. If I'm, you know, once you know the guitar, you, you, you transfer that over to bass. But even on my piano play, it's always the first thing I do when I sit at the piano. I'm noodling around on some, you know, dissonant jazz chords with the blues, uh, you know, kind of tied into there. So that's that's my map to. That's almost kind of like okay, this is home, and you build on that foundation uh, each time. So that's helped me. Yeah. Oh, like I keep hearing guitar because you brought it. Yeah, I yeah. I want I want to see if you can sort of portray what you mean. Sure, sure, absolutely. I have this, um, I actually have this tune to a certain tuning right now. Let me get back to standard tuning so I can show you what it is. Funny enough, we're talking about a sound chart earlier. This is actually tuning from, uh, from Chris Cornell. Um, well, do you mean like in terms of 
just as an artist or like as someone who's trying to achieve something? I think just as an artist to start, and then before developing into you know a certain place they want to be with their art. Well, I mean, most of the artists that I have on, like the well, the underlying theme of all of them is the sort of like the drive and right. ambition. Not sort of like, oh, I have big dreams to do whatever, but just sort of like the uh, the drive internally they have to get to the point they they perceive that they want to get to. Sure. Um, that, that's what I've seen. Uh, like the struggle with. Right. Um, let me think. I'm not really. That's fine. Um, struggle with. That's a good question. I'm gonna have to look back and see what's going on. Yeah. No. I mean. Because I, the one thing I was, uh, um, and we were talking about this the other day, uh, and it's, it would be really cool, especially when we look at the artists that we all love. The one question that not a lot of people ask them, especially, you know, let's just talk about these guys that we were just talking about, like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and Ray Charles, whatever, but I think it translates over today. Who, um, what was their developmental process like? Hey, Jimmy. How, 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 who were you listening to, like, you know, who his influences or what, like, who were you trying to really emulate when you were bending those strings like that? Was it Buddy Guy? Was it BB King? Where, when did you get that breakthrough where you're like, oh, wow, this tone sounds really good? And I don't know if, you know, who knows, maybe they might not want to disclose that, but I feel that that's a, that's a very interesting um, point in an artist's life when you have that breakthrough of like, oh, this sounds like me. You know what I mean? Like, this, this is what I feel. And you translate it over. No matter what you're playing, you find that one thing that's like, oh, this is why it still sounds like me. Yeah. And people think that, think of that as very, I can't say, it's a, I don't think it's a narcissism. I think it's like a, they're like, oh, how, how dare you evaluate that this yeah. is your sound? But I think it's very important. It's, it's something you think about today, that's the market that we're in. It's like, if you don't have a brand, you're almost shunned. And I don't think you should go into thinking of it as like, I have a brand when you're thinking about your music. Yeah. But I think inevitably that goes to your foundation. If you were to talk about who you sound like, why your music mm -hmm. um, is important, and why people should be listening to it, I mean, apart from it being all those things, being important, sounding great, how would you explain that to someone that, let's yeah. just say they, they weren't able to, say say someone could hear, but they weren't able to hear music. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your music? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something definitely to think about. I, I think something that artists I've seen and like musicians, right, they struggle with is just um, finding out like stage presence. Sure. Yeah, like, they can be amazing musicians, but you just look sort of like, I don't know, it just looks like you're you're watching them practice in their bedroom instead of like actually performing for the crowd. Right. right. Um, I mean, if you would count that as a, you know, a struggle. I think so. I mean, because it's, I think, playing for people and playing for yourself are different things. Yeah. Uh, playing for yourself or playing for people and recording are two different things. Mm -hmm. Recording is a whole different art, I think, than playing live. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think about recording, like, hey, you go in there and you're just playing live and somebody captures some of the microphones. No, there's, there's different arts of recording yeah. and production. Sorry, these strings get out of whack when I'm jumping around between two knees. I've had a guitar before, no. I yeah. struggles. <laughs> I've had to buy, you know, more than my fair share of tuners. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. And it's uh, it's different too because, and see, you know, speaking of you, when you're asking me um, things that I go back on and things that I need to, oh, like what do you work on when you're jumping back into an instrument? I used to be able to tune this without a tuner. Really? And that shows you how far my ear is away from, like, you know, I'm not touching the guitar every day. Um, and people say, oh yeah, well, you sit at the piano, you should go to the same thing. I'm like, no, I'm like, my ear is not like, it's not like that when you're when you're not thinking about it every single day. So it shows that that's the human side of us. I don't think. You know. So, whenever, you know, if I'm getting back, if I haven't touched the guitar for a while, um, and I'm getting back into it, the shape, I would say, that's kind of stuck with me, 
that hasn't been able to help you map out the guitar. It's very much a Hendrix script thing. Hendrix used to play chords like this. You know, most people play bar chords. Hendrix used to go wrap it around. And I think there's a functionality to that, there's a physicality to why that helps when you're playing because number one, you can play lead and rhythm at the same time. So you can go. And you're not losing your spot, you can jump around. The other thing is, you literally get control over the dynamics of the full range. So you're hitting your thumb is hitting the right and the rest of the setting than 
going out and playing a show. So when you need to know that this makes you feel something, if you're not feeling anything with just you in your bedroom, when this is amplified or this is being recorded, it's you're, you're not going to get what you're looking for out of it. Yeah. If it doesn't hit you right there. So that's what I think that developmental process is. So it's like understanding how to move your foundations, learning what you can do with less, and then expand the idea. Once you get a feel going between the, the, the skeleton of it, you can expand that out. So if I was here, For 
that's been created for that, that is going to continue growing as long as people are reacting to that in those respective fields. But I think that at the very core, if you if you are by any way jaded or you feel almost afraid of where that is moving and what direction the creative realm is moving because of technology or because of anything in that you know in that same conversation, I think the one thing you have to reassure yourself with is if all that technology was cut off, so this is not to you know, throw anyone as a you know whose art is strictly based off of technology like under the bus, but if you didn't have, if, if that technology all went out the window, those people that are in those I guess for lack of a better word primitive stages of doing their art, if they're if they're still able to continue, what do you have to be afraid of? Meaning for those people. So if I know that tomorrow, hey, you know what? There's going to be no more film. There's going to be no more. Let's just say all the other new stuff coming out, like VR. Um, in the audio world, there's the like Atmos and all those different technologies where a mix sounds differently when you when you put it together when you're recording and whatnot. And while that's out the window, uh, what would that take away my ability to still create something? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm sure that the mediums would obviously change. Right? The, what, what you feel you want your art to do, that needs to be evaluated at the time. But you can still create, whereas someone that solely relies on the technology, yeah. they might have to spend a bit more time in going backwards. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel that there's opportunity for both folks. I think it's just more a conversation of how someone reassures himself as they move into that larger, um, you know, the larger pool of fish mm -hmm. of what the, what the possibilities are. Definitely. Yeah. And so, what are you what are you feeling in terms of like sort of combining visual arts and music? Um, so this is why do you feel like that that there's you know there's going to be a growing market towards that and people should sort of like find a way to make that like their brand instead of just being like no. You know, well, yeah, uh, I see. Like, yeah, yeah. That, so here's what I here's what I'm saying. I mean, obviously, the record industry. I think for people that like I'm speaking specifically for musicians and so on. The record industry that people are nostalgic about, and trust me, I'm guilty of this too. You know, I have my moments where I'm like, oh, of course someone's going to hear this tune and it's going to be distributed as a record of this album. That's a very, that's a great, that's a great feeling to have about your art and how you want to put it out. But the way that people are receiving information now is twofold. Like, it, ha it has to be something visual attached to it in order for them to digest it. And I know it sounds like, for most people that want to stay true to however they were originally going about their plan, mm -hmm. that you're compromising too far, uh, too far than what you would normally expect. But that that is how that is the best way to get your music out there. I would say it's just like, oh, what the, you think about the way we react to music now. Oh, what's that song from that one movie? And what's that song from that TV show? Uh, that TV show? And that's how we're gravitating towards what we want to take take and sit down and listen to. Uh, and you know that's I feel like that's a lot more that's a that's a more lucrative way to create a business than doing music now because all the other things you know streaming through all the platforms you know whether it's Spotify this Spotify are you going through Tidal etc that that that's a very that's a very regulated way to do it um, and there's a lot more to manage with that than there is in putting it to film and I'm not saying that. Everyone has to gravitate towards doing something visual now. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this is my personal choice for doing it, and I think this is the reason why I'm doing it is because that's how people are reacting. Um, I'll give you an example. I think I've gained more traction in the past six months having my music tied to visuals, and then people being like, "Oh, dude, and you sing as well? Yeah, that's great. Where can I check out your music?" Yeah. Versus, I'm going to put it out on Spotify. Someone's going to see that on Oh, Top New Artists of the Week. And they'll be like, oh, this guy's cool. Yeah. And you're just going to be, you're like, you know, we talked about this, you're, you're going to be a part of the noise. Mm -hmm. There's so much to choose from these days. And I think, like we were just talking about before, when you think about, the, let's use the Sabbath uh, uh, example we were using, you, you can immediately tie them to the environment that they come from. Mm -hmm. How you choose your projects in the visual realm also determines how people are going to visualize the music. And yeah. you have, and people think that that's very, um, that makes it a, a challenge. That actually gives you a lot of control as a as a musical artist. Hey, you know what? 
I'm going to go for things that really create the tone of the type of music I do. So if I'm, if I, let's use James Bond as a thing, if I want to do like a sexy, dark, brooding, spy kind of thing, or a, a, a drama, I'm going to probably, that, that's probably going to be great for my bluesy, jazzy kind of style that I do. Um, because I can grit that up, I can write lyrics that are very much in line with that world. And most of the original music I have, it comes from experiences that are, um, that are adaptable to the visual medium that we're talking about for that genre. Um, and that, that markets the music on its own. Uh, all I have to do is say, hey, yes or no to what project I'm doing. And there's a misconception too that when you're starting out, you can't really choose what you're doing. I'm like, well, yes and no, you can, I mean, if, you do, if, if, you're, if you're one of those rare few that are like, hey, you know what, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna be a starving artist and I'm gonna do this from scratch, I'm not going to get a day job, I'm not gonna do that. That's totally to you, you know, more power to you or respect however you wanna do that. But the, the power in choosing projects to make your portfolio brand and make it consistent, that lies in not having to have a financial reliance on the project. Right. And when you're starting out, people always say, hey, you can't choose your project. You can absolutely choose your projects. You can even choose when you want to start negotiating terms. There's no rules to how, how you go about marketing them, because marketing yourself, because this is a totally new um, way of putting yourself out, as I think, as a, as a musician. Uh, in, this, in this particular problem, I don't want to alienate anyone any other artists, but for, I'm speaking for musicians here. This is a this is a, a brand new way to do this, and I think if people focus on that more, you would probably start seeing some of those same trends of the music that you like from previous eras or whatever. Yeah, that would come back. No, I mean, and I you used to say it all the time with all the other stuff. I was going to try to like guide them towards like their marketing strategies or whatever. Right. I'm just you know like think of, you know Madden. Like, yeah, good Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Just hearing and hearing over and over like, oh, who is this person? Right. That seeing a lot of artists you know going. And submitting their their music towards like you know like YouTube vlogs or like right. people who are streaming on Twitch or something. Yep. And you're you're right. I mean, you just have to go where the eyeballs are as an artist. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, you know what? When we open this up, and uh, I think people are afraid. Um, and you know, even sharing information, people people have to take take that away. That once you share it, oh, everyone else is going to be doing what you're doing. It's not necessarily true because it goes back to what we said. It's not for everyone. Yeah, that marketing scheme doesn't work for every person. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, like we said, if you're a musician, you sound great. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've met that they told me, "Hey, your music would be great for film," mm -hmm. but they were talking about my songs. My songs wouldn't necessarily just off the bat be great for film, but I did know that I could write an original tune for film, and that would be great, and I could score as well on the side. That's where I found my niche. Someone else. Um, they may not. They may not. Sorry. They might not want their their particular song in a certain scene. They're like, oh, I don't want my music to be associated with that scene. Yeah. So you need to know that whether this is a realm for you. This is the route you want to take. Yeah. Um, some people do well with performing and doing the local circuit, and I'm like, that's if if you want to do that, and if you want to be in the traditional sense of how music was uh, being marketed and put out, I totally get that. Um, I almost find that you got to think about the capacity for when people are watching a live show uh, versus when they're watching something like a, a movie or a TV show. When they're watching a movie or a TV show, not always, but more, more times than not, you think about everyone these days. Everyone's getting off of work. They've you know, done whatever they're eating, you know, things are, and they're winding down for the night, and that's the time that they're alone with themselves. So the way they receive that content is going to be a lot different than when they're going out with friends. Yep. And they're having a couple of drinks. People are talking. They're not going to digest art uh, in exactly the same way. That's not to say that some art can't knock you on your floor, or on your ass when you go watch yeah. some artists. There have been those instances as well. But I think that you got to think about if you want people to react to your music the same way that you reacted to music as a musician, where you used to listen to records in a room and you sat there and it was quiet. Think about it. What is that now? It's people coming home and watching something on Netflix. You know, everybody has that wind up at the end of the night. Well, not everyone's watching Netflix, but I'm saying like everyone has that alone time. However, they choose to use that. That's how you have to market your art. If that's how you want people to really take in your stuff. If you're someone that just wants to be a, a pop musician and just put stuff out on the radio, hey, that 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 industry that that's still there for the record industry. You can still do that. Um, 
And what I'm talking about for those people that feel like, hey, maybe my music is way, way too uh, specific, or it's way too, um, you know, kind of niche or like, hey, I, I sound like I, all, I, all I play is very bluesy stuff, or all I play is country stuff, and I don't see it kind of sticking out from the rest of the crowd. You might want to think about how people, how, how, how would you, how do you receive the music that you listen to, and how would you want to adapt that into the meetings that we have available? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, what do you have coming up now? Um, so, I have, uh, on my end, I'm working on a web series um, with the director right now. I, you know, I'll definitely check in with you just to disclose a bit on what the, the details are for that. But immediately on my end, I have, an, uh, I have two EPs coming out um, within the span of this year and early next year. So, the first one will be called Death of a Salesman. That will be released tentatively June the 6th. It's a, it's a great book, and it, the, the the title was just so you know it wasn't it wasn't related to anything um, that was been done musically. So I was like, okay, it fits the context of the of the record. So that's going to be out. That's going to be a five song EP, um, and it's going to be the follow up to my first EP, which is called Devil's Hour Radio. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know that should be hitting. Um, you know I should be distributing that this summer, uh, and the different platforms are to be determined. But I'll be I'll be putting that up, and then I'll be starting. Um, Starting work production on my uh, third EP after that, so uh, that'll be scheduled to be coming out early next year. Awesome. So yeah, and apart from that, just continuing scoring and taking on more projects. That's awesome. Yeah. How about for yourself? What's uh, what's on the agenda for? Something uh, NYC. Yeah. Uh, definitely thinking about branching out in terms of more more content. So I mean, you know, stay tuned for more sort of uh, I would say like intimate sort of content. Just uh, Based on just the artist, sure. So I'm definitely, you know, in the future thinking of doing some sort of like you know, day in the life of an artist just walking through, yeah. Or maybe like a series where we follow an artist from like inception of an idea to like finished product. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, and some other stuff that I'll, I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> All right. Off, off the record. Yeah. 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 But thanks so much, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's not just great. a musician, but a, a scholar as well. I think. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank awesome. you for having me on. Man.